Welcome to the first season of the Anglican Curiosities Podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Paris, Director of Marketing, Publications, and Public Relations at Trinity School for Ministry and overall curious person. In this inaugural season of the podcast, we're seeking to give you a 5,000-foot view of what the Anglican tradition is, what makes it distinct, who are the key characters throughout history, and what do churches in the Anglican tradition look like today? We hope these episodes will allow you to see the big picture while pointing out some key details along the way. Whether you're curious to know if this tradition could be personally meaningful, or if you've been around Anglican churches for a while, and there are things about it you've wanted to know but haven't found the way to ask, we welcome you to be curious with us today. Christians around the world have found a richness, depth, and beauty that brings us closer into connection with our triune God through the Anglican worship tradition, something which I can personally attest to. As we continue our season one survey of Anglicanism, we must spend time exploring the principles of Anglican worship both today and in the past. Our guest today is someone who understands this interplay of past traditions and history informing our present and future in the context of Anglican worship intimately. The Reverend Dr. Michael Jensen is the rector of St. Mark's Anglican Church in Darling Point, Australia, and previously taught theology and church history at Moore Theological College in Sydney, Australia. His latest book, Reformation Anglican Worship, showcases how the reading and preaching of the scriptures, the sacraments, prayer, and singing inform not only Anglican worship, but worship as it's prescribed in the Bible. We're so excited Michael is joining us today to help us satisfy our curiosities about Anglican worship, all the way from Sydney, Australia, no less. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Christian. It's our pleasure. So in this conversation, we're talking about Anglican worship as a subset of Christian worship. And you wrote a book on that topic. But I'm hoping we can just kind of level set with our listeners right at the beginning some definition of terms for the sake of this conversation. So when you talk about Christian worship, how do you define that? What are the characteristics you use to describe that? And then similarly for Anglican worship, that Anglican subset. Worship. Yeah, and, and it's worth it's worth just uh, starting off by saying Anglican worship is only worth studying insofar as it is authentically Christian. Um, it's important that the worship of any tradition um, go back to its sources. These traditions don't exist independently of that of that source, and um, and that's that's part of the Reformation spirit. In fact, is to keep refining and going back and asking the question: Is this authentically and truly Christian um, worship itself? Um, now, we normally use that word, by the way, to uh, to mean what happens in in a church service. Um, very often, you have a worship pastor uh, who usually is the person who leads the singing these days. So we think of uh, we think of um, where do you worship as a question we might ask, which is where do you go to church? Or uh, we've had an hour of worship, which means we've had an hour of of singing, uh, particularly in a in a kind of independent evangelical or Pentecostal context. But worship um, means something richer and deeper than that. And uh, I, I think I like the term engaging with God. But as a response to be authentically Christian, Christian worship is engaging with God as a response to God's grace for us in Jesus Christ. So the Bible's quite clear that there are false types of worship and that there are true types of worship, that there are false ways to worship the true God and that there are 
false gods that you worship, that you might worship. And so these types of worship should be repudiated. And what's distinct about the worship of the true God is the way in which he provides the way we worship. He makes it possible for us to worship. So it's not, it's, it's quite, it's, it's quite crucial. It's not a performative uh, act. It's not that we worship in order to please God, uh, in order to justify ourselves before God, but that we worship, uh, we find our worship pleasing to God because he, in his grace, justifies us. So that informs, I think, that particular emphasis on grace informs Anglican worship. Uh, it It was this discovery, rediscovery of the true nature of Christian worship that propelled a lot of the Reformation changes from Luther through to Calvin, through to Zwingli, and then onto the uh, onto the British Isles uh, through Cranmer and the others as they f- formulated um, their worship for uh, for the English for the English people. Um, they wanted to see worship that was a response to grace. So you needed a couple of things. You needed to actually understand what was going on. And in the medieval church, this wasn't the case because, uh, as we know, things were done in in Latin and um, not everyone had gone to school to learn Latin. So um, it was really then uh, a a sort of uh, a a blank and mysterious um, act that people didn't really understand what was going. But Luther says faith comes from what the Bible says, and Luther picked up and emphasised that faith comes from hearing that God's uh, God's operation in his people and among his people is by the spirit through through his powerful word. And so what Christian worship needs to do is to be, it needs to be the gathered worship of, the, uh, particularly the gathered worship, it needs to be an occasion for the receiving, the listening of God's people to the voice of God and then an invitation for them to respond. So that's what we get in the various um, uh, liturgies of the Reformation, which really represents a bit of a, re- uh, I won't say a revolution, a, a renaissance of the of, of Christian worship, I think. Thank you. So um, many people referred to your new book as a refreshing take on Anglican worship that's rooted in the history of the Reformation and the Bible itself. Um, so it seems like you're making the point that we now in 2020, 2022 need uh, a refreshing of our understanding of worship. So what led you to that conviction, which led you to write the book? Well, I was invited to write the book, so I didn't okay. think about it. But <laughs> so, one level, it was just it just came to me out of the out of the blue. But uh, another level, I do really think we need a, a, a fresh look at uh, the heart of a true Christian worship, and I do feel like the Anglican tradition has has something. If we look at it, has something that really opens our eyes to see what Christian worship could be in all its richness. Um, and partly that's because at the moment, I, I do feel we live in a in an era of of um, I, I was going to say it's the era of a sort of Tower of Babel of Christian types of Christian worship. Um, the the type of worship that uh, and by that I mean your your um, the, the corporate worship of your church services become like your brand, and so. Um, it's offered us, you know, we have contemporary worship, we have traditional worship, um, which I find kind of, I don't want to say disgusting, but alarming that that really it's sort of become a flavour like ice cream. Um, it's become something that 
people will go around and choose because of their preference for a certain a certain type of uh, atmosphere or music. I think this is terrible. Um, takes us away from the true nature of worship, becomes a piece of advertising, at the church just performing part of the consumer market. Um, and we really need to not do that. We need to stand out from that, in fact. Um, in fact, as society changes, uh, it turns out that um, the church, by by being a still a still point, um, by returning to its sources, will will actually stand and by honouring, particularly focusing in and honouring the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ, will will look markedly different. And so that needs to inform our our worship. Um, I think too. Um, uh, Pelagianism, as they said in the Reformation, Pelagianism, that is uh, the, the trying to justify ourselves through our moral effort, is uh, an incipient and persistent um, human failing, and it affects the church, and the church needs to turn away from it continually. And um, uh, I think we have Pelagianism in kind of two directions. One is the Pelagianism of, um, of, uh, of uh, the, spontane- the spontaneous we say that uh, spontaneous worship is the most authentic worship. And so if only I can kind of manufacture these uh, spontaneous experiences, then that will um, that will connect me with God. And then we have a sort of Pelagianism of uh, what I would call antiquarianism, which is kind of not not true traditionalism, but actually just saying, look, if we if we actually get our uh, our medieval style worship exactly right and aesthetically as pleasing as it possibly can be. Once again, this will be true worship that will truly connect us with God. I think both of those are, are mistakes, and they they infect the the wider the wider church, the various branches of the church. Actually, the uh, Anglican Reformation taught us something very different to both of those temptations, which really dovetails nicely into our next question because it seems like. Um, you know, there's the argument, part of the argument you're making, which you're not the first, of course, but to have a refreshed, renewed sense of our worship today, we have to look back um, to the time of the Reformation and and even more to the ancient times of scriptures. So, um, So how does that, looking back to provide vision for today and tomorrow, um, how does that inform you? How does is there an, maybe an example from your own ministry of how that has uh, enriched um, your your leading and um, and your ministry? Well, I, I want to be clear that, and I think I've I've already made this move. I, I I'm um, I'm not interested in antiquarianism, and exactly. just loving the past for its own sake. Right? It's really that's really important because there is that there is that people. People come and go. What a beautiful! I mean, my building is only built in the 1840s, but in Australia, that's really old. <laughs> so, uh, and it's a neo-Gothic style uh, and a very beautiful example of it. And people go, "What a beautiful building! We love the the, the choir that you have, and it's such a it's such an amazing uh, throwback." And and uh, they get off on on that sort of thing. And that's not what I'm about here. I, what I'm about is uh, returning, as I said, returning to the sources. And the, interestingly, going back to the Reformation takes us back to the, the source of Christian worship, which is Christ revealed to us in, this, in the scriptures. And, and I think 
what I've learned from that, I, I have to say, this isn't my upbringing. My upbringing was was Anglican, but in a type of Anglicanism which perhaps looked um, to American Anglicans more Baptist, as in uh, very informal services, no, almost no formal liturgy, um, and the sermon was the centerpiece and uh, would go for, you know, a, a, more than 50% of the entire length of the service, contemporary music, um, no robes on the minister, all that sort of thing. And um, the problem with this for me was actually we've got less scripture, even though we proclaimed we thought we were Bible people. And there was good preaching, don't get me wrong, uh, in the kind of tradition of John Stott, who I admire immensely, um, but but it became really about a preacher and it didn't. we didn't actually encounter God in scripture well. And what I've, what I've noticed in the pattern of uh, Anglican worship um, that Cranmer and the others bequeathed to us is that you get a journey through, through scripture. You get, um, you encounter uh, not a small God, but the almighty and most merciful God. And so uh, what we need in this, in this uh, troubled time, in fact, is a big vision of God. Um, we're reminded of that by by Cranmer because he points us back to Scripture, which takes us there. We're uh, confronted by the Scriptures and told to have warm uh, warm hearts, and we're challenged uh, uh, to have soft hearts. Uh, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. <laughs> that psalm again and again we hear that psalm, um, just as we're about to hear the Scriptures read to us. We have the Scriptures read to us: Old, New Testaments, the Gospels. Um, we confess our sins, which is a remarkable sort of countercultural act. We live in the era of deny everything, right? And that's that's uh, that's what companies and politicians are supposed to do, um, and uh, confess nothing. Whereas you come before the holy God, unable to hide anything, and we're told that uh, for, uh, He is the God from whom no secrets are hid. That's a pretty challenging and confronting uh, moment each Sunday. Um, but we're also given the, the good news of the gospel, the great the, that that he is a most merciful God, and um, that's extraordinary too because uh, the the judgment of our age is so uh, unrelenting and actually unmerciful. So if you've ever been the centre of a Twitter storm, you'll know what I mean. Um, <laughs> cancel culture is far less merciful. Uh, we forgive nothing. And, um, and yet you come to church each Sunday, you hear the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. You, you hear that you're a sinner and you're told about God's mercy again and again and again. And I think uh, that, just, that just refreshes my soul each, each week. Um, I also think uh, that the Christian church suffers strangely from a drought of God's word. Um, and again, I think partly it's the evangelical subculture that I've been part of, which makes it all about the preacher and not about the word that is being preached and um, doesn't give us the scope of scripture, doesn't show us Christ in the whole of scripture. The Reformation did this brilliantly by making sure we heard again and again um, the, the scriptures in their entirety. Um, and it wasn't just about a, a particular person or authority. That was key to the Reformation. Mm -hmm. The people need to hear the word. Yeah, yeah. I totally resonate with what you're saying. I have found that my heart longs for and rests in worship that is rooted in the scriptures. And um, and that has led me to be a part of an Anglican church here in my area. And um, yeah, every Good choice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and 
Yeah, and you really set up my next my next question. Well, I don't know if I I even need to ask it because you articulated so much in that last answer. Um, but I'll go for it anyway. So worship through the scriptures does have this way of satisfying the longings of our hearts. How would you describe what's happening as a, both a priest and somebody who's, who's studied this topic and how is Anglicanism uniquely set up to facilitate this longing that we have that we find in our worship? Um, it's because the, um, I mean, I think this is a, this is a totally um, on the money question, right? It's just um, uh, because I think we've been looking uh, as a Christian church in all the wrong places here because uh, we call, we, we've been looking for the Holy Spirit and yet the Holy Spirit operates uh, through the Word of God. Um, now, I don't limit the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can operate in many different ways. But we know that when the Bible is opened and the people of God gather around the Word of God and the Word of God is read to us, that the Holy Spirit is there, that God's Word is living and active, that it, he promises it won't return to him empty. So uh, I think we actually, we, we, we actually recover the Spirit um, a, a doctrine of the Holy Spirit, an experience of the Holy Spirit, as we sit under God's work. Now we've got to be care- we, we've got to remember too that sometimes it's it's jolly uncomfortable because you hear things and you're supposed to say, you know, hear the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, and you sit there wondering, why am I thanking God? <laughs> you know, you, you you're actually challenged and uh, and uh, and you have to think, you have to pray for the work of the Spirit to show you how this word, this word, which has actually unsettled you, challenged you, confronted you, made you squirm, is actually something you, you should gratefully, gratefully receive as the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to you. So um, I, I, really, I, I really think this is, this is an important thing. We need to help um, believing Christians um, accept as they come that uh, what they're going to do doesn't, doesn't buff their egos doesn't isn't about um, giving you a, a kind of nice, uh, comforting hug, um, but it challenges you. Now, it does comfort you as well. It doesn't comfort, I mean, it deeply comforts you and realistically comforts you, but you're not seeing a therapist when you come to church. You're encountering the almighty God who who loves you and um, and who wants, you know, who who is desperate for, for you to turn to him. Uh, my friend, Ashley Null, who's uh, really the editor of the series, Professor Ashley Null, he says um, that he, he talk calls the doctrine of uh, the, the doctrine of scripture and the reformation. Uh, he describes in this way. He says that um, the scriptures as the re, uh, Anglican reformers saw it, um, had the function of um, telling, turning and tethering us. So, Again, the spirit is is active in all three functions. Um, it, we we learn stuff. We we are told about God. We we learn information. We are told about Him. Uh, we are then turned. We we are we are led to repent. The work of the Spirit convicts us of our sins, um, leads us to mortify those parts, put to death those things that are of the earthly and sinful nature. And put on those things that which are of the heavenly, the heavenly nature, uh, so as we become more and more Christ-like and proceed towards our resurrection selves and tether. Uh, that is, God grabs us and keeps us um, by His by His word. He preserves us by that. Um, that's powerful stuff. And so, uh, I, this is what the the Anglican liturgy sets us up to do: is to get the Bible open 
for that little time a week we have, undistracted time, and get it working because God promises to work. Right. Yeah, yeah, and it it never ceases to amaze me time and time again as I as I read through the scriptures, and I'm like, why is this line so familiar? Oh, because this is in the that this liturgy and that liturgy. Like it just always amazes me how deeply embedded the scriptures are in um, in the liturgies that we experience uh, week in and week out, day in yeah. and day out. You're right. It habituates us mm-hmm, to exactly. the scripture, the voice of God. So, so this is the power of it. I mean, uh, again, we we live in a spontaneous culture that says, "Why do we repeat things?" I heard someone say uh, the other day, and it, well, I don't think it was actually in an Anglican context, but they come to their pastor and they said, "So, why is it that we say um, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore at the end of every service?" And the pastor said, "Yes." <laughs> you know, that's the answer. You remember it. <laughs> so, and if you've ever ministered to the dying, um, even those who ex- have experienced dementia and Alzheimer's, um, the way in which the the uh, the repetition of the of the liturgy has got into their very souls um, is uh, just extremely powerful to witness. To see the way in which the operation of the Spirit of God has has just formed, become part of them. Even in, in their dying hours, it's still true. It's as if he he knew what he was doing when he designed us. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Again, we're a culture that doesn't do learning this way. No, um, we don't. By rote, um, and uh, but but it's an amazing gift that we give one another when we when we give this um, this this repetition to one another. And uh, all, all the parts of the liturgy. It's interesting. I, I've got people who've been coming to a Book of Common Prayer service for all their lives, and they don't know that, that, that things come from Scripture um, in that way. Um, but uh, it, it's as a preacher, it's terrific to be able to point to bits in the liturgy, to repeat bits of the liturgy and connect, connect all the parts and say, this is the gospel that you've been saying to one another and you've been praying. Absolutely. Are you sensing a call to ordain ministry or ministry leadership but need further training? Consider Trinity's Master of Divinity program. This 90-credit master's degree will provide you with not only a solid academic foundation in biblical studies, theology, church history, missions, and pastoral ministry, but also the holistic formation necessary for ministry work. On-campus students live in intentional community with one another, participating in morning and evening prayer, daily lunches, study, and ministry activities together. For those who can study full-time on campus, significant tuition scholarships are available. Up to two-thirds of the program can be completed online, though at least one year of study on campus is required. You can learn more by visiting tsm.edu or by contacting our admissions team at admissions at tsm.edu. So you conclude your chapter on the sacraments like this. Um, the gospel signs, i.e. sacraments, retain their power to nourish believers in their faith and to assure them of the work of God in their lives, which is what we've been, a lot of what we've been talking about. The practice of the sacraments reminds the faithful that God is not simply distant and transcendent, but also present and active among them. Um, based on your scholarship and practice, 
What what makes a teaching like this particularly reformed, and what makes that a compelling statement for the church today? Ah, well, again, I, I, I just personal context, uh, maybe confession, as far as some some are concerned. Um, I come from, as I say, a very evangelical background with a bit of suspicion that uh, anything too much about the sacraments is uh, smacks of uh, medieval Catholicism. And um, I think actually study of the, the Reformation itself, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli and, uh, and Cranmer has uh, led me, and, and of the Book of Common Prayer, uh, has led me to a deeper appreciation in my own spiritual life for um, the sacraments of baptism and uh, and the Lord's Supper, and for what what extraordinary spiritual value they have. However, I think the statement I made there was really uh, trying to pick up that in the Reformed thinking, the sacraments are more verb than noun. Um, what do I mean? Uh, it's less about the objects and more about the um, the actions. It's more about it's more about the uh, pointing to uh, what we are believing and doing, what these things are symbolizing as we do them, than it is about um, supposing that God inhabits or uh, particular items, particular inanimate objects. I think that's a sort of metaphysics uh, that the Reformation was trying to get away from. And um, it was a highly, personally, I think it's highly misleading um, uh, metaphysics. But uh, at one level, I want to say whatever. <laughs> the, the reality is as we... As we uh, as we come to the table by faith, um, it, God uses these symbols uh, to to tether us to Himself, um, to tell us to turn us and to tether us, just as He does with His Word. There's a powerful enactment of the gospel in these sacraments in their different way, and so um, that's what the that's what the the uh, the um, the Book of Common Prayer, Holy Communion liturgy does in the uh, words of distribution. It, it, talk, it talks about us feeding in our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. It points to the spiritual eating that we're doing, that this physical eating um, powerfully symbolizes. Um, now, I think I think uh, the, the the language of um, Efficacious is used in is used in the Book of Common Prayer. It's not mere memorialism. The Spirit is at work. So now, I, uh, now Zwingli uh, for, for Reformation scholars out there, uh, the Zwingli is accused of having a mere memorialist view that uh, this is simply about uh, memory. Actually, uh, the best Zwinglian scholars claim that Zwingli was not a Zwinglian. So, so there's more to his. <laughs> Just, just really helpful, isn't it? That he's actually got a, 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 a more rich view of his uh, of the sacraments. Um, but the Anglican, the Anglican view, actually, uh, not quite uh, Calvinist. Uh, it's not quite Calvinist. It, it takes from the the broad uh, tr- uh, the tradition, the broad school of uh, of uh, what you might call Reformed theology um, in the Swiss, French, South German areas. Um, brought to England by men like Martin Busser and others, and um, that finds its way into the English liturgy, which which is it's a very high view of the sacraments as a, as a, a God works through them. He's they are efficacious, they do their job, but they do their job um, as a pre, as a as a kind of enacted word, and in the same way as the word, um, they work by faith. So as we take them, the spirit works in us. Um, so now I've lost track of the original question. You might oh, that's like okay. That yeah. <laughs> well, so I want to put this question to you that I feel like I still haven't gotten like a really good answer because you said it's not a memorial. And I forget which 
part of the it Eucharistic. It's not just a memorial. It's not ju- okay. Thank you. It's not. It is. It's not just because, yeah, because because memorial is used in part of the Eucharistic liturgy. I can't remember which one. Yes. Um, so you're saying it's it's both and, right? Yes, that's okay. right. Okay. Yeah, um, that's and uh, it's because the Spirit makes the remembrance of Christ powerfully present to us mm. by faith. So as we remember, um, then uh, as as we remember, as we as we uh, as we by faith hear the gospel, um, then then we actually God is actually at work spiritually at work in us in the present so and and present to us in yeah. this in this meal and in, in in that sacrament of baptism too thank you thank thank but you for that it, that's not real present i i use the word real and i use the word presence but this is not a doctrine of real presence exactly <laughs> real presence. yes so what makes this spirit this this teach you know this this look at the sacraments what makes that compelling today for you and uh, for the people you're leading in your parish? Um, it's earthy and it's gritty. Um, uh, it's uh, it's a, it, it, we can actually this is this is the grace of God to us in in the sacraments in, in that they are t- tangible. Um, so so we we can reach out and receive them. Um, they speak to us. Uh, as human beings, as physical human beings, they speak to us of the the the, the salvation of our bodies as well as our souls. But this is so so. What we have in the sacraments is a, a restora You know, we we have the promise of the resurrection in them, um, uh, and that's powerful because of the streak of. Um, both idolization of the body and, and loathing of the body that we have in our contemporary culture, um, that we approach much of uh, the things we worship in a kind of virtual sense. Uh, and I use the word worship in a very broad sense there, in, again, in contemporary culture. So as a, um, as a piece of evangelism, the sacraments are, uh, are amazing. Uh, we, we live almost in a kind of uh, so many paradoxes in contemporary culture. I was about to say post-symbolic, but then it's kind of hyper-symbolic. Um, uh, virtue, you know, we can be anyone we like, um, and yet we also idolise the the physically whole, or we kind of pretend to be physically whole, and yet here in our bodily weakness. I mean, I I can't. Uh, one of the most powerful parts of my week is to name my parishioners, and to go uh, and and to and to say to perhaps the person I know is suffering from cancer, um, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Preserve your body and soul unto eternal life. It's not just the soul. It's the dying body of that person. You know, it's the kind of, uh, but also to, to walk alongside the alcoholic or the person who's just, a, you know, I know is a sinner and knows that they're a sinner and to say, preserve your body and soul to eternal life. I know that's, that's, that's again, I, I mean, what other where where else do we get that comfort? Yeah, I so resonate. That's why one of my favorite things is I and I and I, I will confess uh, to my my priests who are might be listening to this podcast. I tend to um, find the priests at communion who I know will uh, 
call me by name and and, and give that to me yeah. because I I deeply resonate with with what you're saying as someone who who receives that by name it I've found that to be very special and profound in my my own walk. Yeah, I know. I know. Cranmer didn't say anything about remembering people's names, but I I kind of think Jesus knows the names of his sheep, and yeah. so I kind of feel like. Like that, that's a particular thing I, I feel very committed to, mm-hmm. um, uh, to, to saying people's names so that mm-hmm. they, they are not, this is not an anonymous um, act because they come to the table and because God knows them by name, Jesus mm-hmm. knows them by name, you know, so um, they are reminded of their preciousness to him and that he laid down his life for them as his, um, as the shepherd. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to convey. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that no, that was that was really great. Thank could, you. Could I add something in? Sure. I was thinking um, of asking a question. Uh, so my first exposure to uh, the prayer book was I saw it on a friend's shelf, and I I was an Anglican. I'm not Anglican now, but um, I was like, "What's this?" And he said, "This walks you through the liturgy, the prayer, and, and uh, I, it just disturbed me to some." Uh, extent uh, the um, the orderliness of it or the uh, the hand holding yes I guess through the service um, and, and I was going to ask what would you say to somebody who uh, is like yes scripture uh, yes the Holy Spirit but um, more spontaneity why do we have to follow this this uh, dirge you know um, but I, but at listening to you describing giving the communion it just and and I've witnessed it here at Trinity I'd you know, I, I run the uh, chapel service every every morning, and and it's nourished my soul a lot over the years. Um, and so I think, how can you? Sorry, this isn't a question. This is more just a comment. I think, how can you um, deny the the emotion that comes out of scripture and and where scripture leads us in worship? And uh, yeah, now now look, um, I, I'd hasten to say that um, my parents, who grew up in the 50s and 60s here in Sydney, when we had the Book of Common Prayer and that was the only service, and the minister did everything, so read the lesson, said the prayers, and um, they remembered when it was done with with kind of complete <laughs> sort of disdain and disinterest, you know, lack of, it was a very boring experience, um, and it can be, that's it can just become a hollow performance. Um, but what a tragedy when that happens. Uh, and the, the trouble is a significant baby is then thrown out with his dirty bathwater. Um, what we need is actually um, not a um, not not casting that aside, but actually I think a, a revival of this. And I, th- I think uh, I think the the best thing this does is by the way, it's um there's an element of humility uh, in it. Um, so it, it goes against the cult of, of the spontaneous. Um, it uh, stops the temptation of um, of, um, of ministers and liturgy lit- liturgists to design liturgy that meets the consumer market, um, makes you feel good. Um, it it actually um, uh, I think it's just a, it's just false to say the spirit equals spontaneous, but we believe it. I mean, it's just common knowledge that the spirit somehow speaks to us in this kind of spontaneous way. Um, not that he doesn't. It's just that. That's that. It does not. Those, those do not equal equal one another. The other thing is too. I think um, uh, there's a sense of the of the. Uh, um, and again, this is where the past is very helpful. Um, is is that a sense that that this is not new? This is um, 
We didn't invent this. Um, and I think, again, there's a, there's a countercultural thing here um, where uh, we're standing in a communion of saints that is not simply um, synchronous with us, but diachronous, you know, goes through and uh, through history. Um, so we're in fellowship with the past. In as we do this, we stand alongside, as we say, the creed, people around the globe, the globe, but also uh, across time. Um, and that that kind of puts us in, I, I think that, that empowers and encourages me, but also puts me in my place somewhat. Um, so that's, uh, there, there, I hope this is a good sales. No, yeah, well <laughs> said. And I, the last thing you were saying about, you know, the, um, the witness of the saints, I think we in America have maybe the hardest time with that because we like to be, it to come from within us, you know, we like the, the, the truth to come from, you yeah. know, to maybe, maybe enter in from some outside source, but you know, to finally yeah, no, come so, from so, us. So, um, no, that's right. I mean, if what's in, uh, I read a, um, uh, a book by Tara Isabella Burton called sacred rights, really interesting analysis of religion, mostly in America, but across the globe as well. And she said, look, the 60s really represented the fourth great awakening. Um, a kind of turn, not it wasn't a movement away from religion, it was a movement towards the intuitive in religion. Um, and uh, you know, now we have the spiritual, not religious. I, I keep meeting people who who don't like the thought of um, submitting to some kind of institution. And look, institutions have have got them, you know, I, I get that. But the institutions are problematic, and and um, you know we can we can revere and idolize institutions. But the alternative is then I have to think of my own thing. I have to generate my own sort of spirituality, and at one level that looks like liberation, but it actually turns out to be. I mean, there's a sort of in the church version and an out of the church version uh, of that, but it turns out to be a prison because. Uh, it's it's unbearable. Um, it's breaking rocks, you know. It's kind of it's um, it's an unbearable burden to to have to um, do things spontaneously always yourself. Whereas the uh, the Book of Common Prayer is there when you feel rubbish. It um, is. That's so true. <laughs> well, thank you. Awesome. Um, so we want to um, make sure we touch on music um, and. Again, in your book, you conclude that at its best, music takes worshipers on the kind of liturgical journey that the Book of Common Prayer does. Um, what does that look like in practice for you as a rector, one who's crafting services week in and week out? Like, how do you think about incorporating music and the role it should rightly play in uh, our worship? I have been asked these, these these questions about, you know, so what does it look like at your church? Um mm -hmm. And I just want to say that, um, like every church, it looks messy <laughs> and, um, and doesn't always work. And, and you know, I I, uh, I I realize I've written a book and now I probably ought to, you know, do more to kind of shape my service. Better maybe so have that we, we, meeting with your music team. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so we have three. I mean, and, and uh, we have three very different services. Um, well, two. Uh, yeah, I guess um, two services are more similar. And one is the our Book of Common Prayer service, uh, which is with a choir and it's it's robed and it's the holy communion every week the other two services are more um soft liturgical i'd suppose um and um and so they they're, they're shaped very differently um they still contain uh readings from scripture they still contain confession they still contain um we do 
communion, of course, once a month in those two services, and uh, they contain the creed. So there are elements, and, and we also say the Lord's prayers as elements of repetition, um, but there are also elements, more spontaneous elements. In one of them, we have an open, open Q&A after the sermon, for instance. So, so there are different there are different elements that go there. Um, what I hope with the music, uh, what I get from my director of music um, at with our choir, is not only does music enhance the music that he chooses, enhance the readings and the, the sermon, um, uh, but there's just a, a a number of different emotional uh, as well as theological uh, modes that the music hits so that the music can take us through lament and confession it can take us to praise of the um of the big not small god uh it can take us to the uh the our gratitude and um the the intimacy of our salvation body and soul in the, in the cross um often they're the wesleyan hymns it can take us to the resurrection it can take us also to hope um and uh i think it's one of the things that um that our music ought to do most of all is kind of focus us is to teach us Christian eschatology um, to look for Jesus coming again. Um, and so I, I hope that when we abandon formal liturgy, which, which may be done, I'm not, I'm not a, I, I, I say that I'm not a liturgical fundamentalist, right? I don't believe that you just, there's only one way to do this. You could do what Cranmer, and Cranmer would agree, there are more ways to do what Cranmer intends than just reading out the Book of Common Prayer. But I would hope that if we're not going to do that, we we kind of hit all these notes. We give people the rich panoply, the symphony of, of, of uh, Scripture, and uh, we enhance their discipleship by, by, um, by, by hitting all these different uh, tones. Um, so that's what, that, and that's complex. That's difficult to do. Um, uh, to do well each week when you're inventing it off the, you, you, you have to invent it each week. I totally understand. Yeah, it's the, the complexity, and I marvel at uh, the pastors and the, and the worship leaders and the liturgical craftsmanship that it takes to do that week in and week out. It's it's a real skill, and um, and there's that element of of knowing the congregation too, because you can you know be trying to hit all these notes and and still lose them. Um, at the same time. And so, yeah, to keep all of those variables in your mind is is truly a, an art and, and science. Yeah. Now, it doesn't have to all be done each week. <laughs> so so true. Um, so, but, but just, just um, uh, you, you have a, the, the good thing about the liturgy is you've got the structure in which you can actually then um, provide variety and variety works in the midst of structure in that way. It Definitely. stands out. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's such a great way of putting it. Thank you. So coming to our, our final question, um, you're a scholar in the topic of worship, but you're also a priest and the rector of a church. So how is your study of Anglican worship, which you were invited to do, but, um, how has that influenced the way you lead your parish? Um, how do your people respond? And how are other leaders responding to your scholarship in this topic? Um, thank you. Thank you for the, the question. I, I pondered hard about this. I, I'm, I'm not sure about um, uh, other, other leaders. It's sometimes hard to gauge how that's going. Although there has been a bit of a, of a um, push back to um, our Anglican heritage here in the Diocese of Sydney, which is famously informal and 
um, you know, at, at famously sort of modernising when it came to liturgy, um, you know, focusing on sermons, as I've explained before. So there's a little bit of a return. Um, one of the interesting things is to learn that um, uh, people who aren't Anglicans, people like Dr. Timothy Keller from New York, uh, uses the Book of Common Prayer in his own personal spiritual life. And um, I've seen that happen more um, amongst people here in um, here in Sydney and across the Anglican Communion, a kind of use of the Book of Common Prayer as a, as a personal devotion. And um, um, there's a rediscovery of this marvellous resource. So, um, so I'm happy to see that. And I, I try and, uh, and I, I um, when we do a confirmation class, um, I present people with a Book of Common Prayer. What I do is I ring up churches that no longer use the Book of Common Prayer and I say to them, uh, have you got, or I put it on Facebook, and I say, have you got a, you know, they'll have a shelf or a cupboard somewhere with, with hundreds of copies of the thing. And I say, can I have them? And then I um, pass them on so that people can use them in their, um, their, own, their own devotions. Um, so I want to do that. Um, and uh, I think... I, I think I'd be. I need to be honest and say that that I, that I need as a rector, I need to be a pragmatist as well. And so, um, uh, it, it's it's slow going trying to teach people that um, that the the words they've been saying for so long are um, actually um, not about are actually about the gospel of justification by faith. You know, they actually they actually teach that they actually teach that Christ's blood. Um, uh, was offered as a uh, payment for your sin. There's a strong doctrine of the atonement here. Um, and so to, to, to kind of point to those so that people learn that genuine Reformation spirituality um, of receiving God's grace with gratitude is kind of the mission uh, The mission here. Um, I've wandered far from the uh, the point of the question, and now I've forgotten it. Um, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> quite right. It was you know when you talked your, your story about asking people for uh, old books of common prayer just on the shelf. Yeah. That I I feel like I've seen that Facebook page <laughs> or that Facebook post or similar ones from pastors and and other leaders that I'm connected to with here in the states. And I just I just kind of chuckle inside and think about yeah I've I've seen I've seen that <laughs> post. It's nice to know that mm. uh, the the hand me down church supplies is a cross continent well, request. Good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. So um. Well, I can say that you you know you might not know how um, leaders are responding to um, your latest book and, and your scholarship and topic worship. I know that there are many folks are in Trinity who are um, very uh, enthusiastic about your work. So it has uh, I can tell it's influencing um, the folks that I know and, and get to work with here um, day to day. So so. On behalf of them, thank you for um, for for the work you've done. Um, any last thoughts that you would want to share with us about um, how this study of worship continues to influence your parish life or um, your your life personally or in the life of your family? Um, well, thank you for that uh, comment about uh, Trinity. I mean, that's very very gratifying because this book took. Um, eight or nine years really to, um, it, it didn't take eight or nine years to write, but it's taken eight or nine years to sort of edit and finalise and revise and all that sort of, and just the process of production. And it's just very gratifying to be 
to be part of the series and to actually discover that someone's read it somewhere <laughs> is very, very um, uh, pleasing. Um, and uh, I really, I mean, I really do hope that, um, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm also encouraged by what I see amongst um, the various uh uh, the various Anglican movements in the United States um, and how well they're going as a, as, as missionary movements. Um, in uh, and I, um, I I think I, I think it's because there's actually a hunger for the kind of thing that Anglican worship represents. Um, and um, uh, we've exchanged um, our birthright for a mess of pottage in many in many ways. So um, I I think the time is right for a proper revival that I says is not, as I say, it's not antiquarian. So not just reading out the same words necessarily, but a, a, a um, recapturing of the spirit and essence of, um, of what, uh, what Cranmer did in his genius. Um, and I suppose that's, that's been my, my, um, my personal experience has been uh, to be humbled, really, to be um, brought before the gracious God again and again and again, and to realize that um, to 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 realize and experience that 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 peace that he brings, to be reminded of my um, uh, that my response of gratitude is pleasing to him by his grace. You know that that um, that uh, uh, I praise him and he chooses to re- receive my praises. Um, that's uh, that's been extraordinary. I, I've I have tried to use some of the Book of Common Prayer prayers in our in our family devotions at various times i mean as most uh parents would say uh you know sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but i've tried to teach some of the great prayers um of the book of common prayer i think the great thanksgiving is possibly my favorite um uh because i i never forget that we are supposed to give humble and hearty thanks i just absolutely love that um but i love the way in which the prayer itself in actually ask is a prayer asking God that he would make us thankful. And that to me sums up the theology of the Book of Common Prayer, that um, we don't come before him to uh, try and press him like the prophets of Baal, uh, cutting ourselves with knives and dancing and frolicking and cavorting, hoping that he will somehow wake up if he's impressed enough, like um, if we've done enough TikTok for him, but rather um, we pray like Elijah. <laughs> um, and uh, it turns out that um, God's holy fire will descend. It will indeed. Thank you, Michael, so much. It has been an honor and a joy and a pleasure to have you on the Anglican Curiosities podcast. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. Trinity School for Ministry's mission of forming leaders who plant, renew, and grow churches that make disciples of Jesus Christ is made possible by our faithful partners. If you would like to join us in our mission, please consider supporting Trinity at tsm.edu giving. Thank you.